children uh, going to the back, be able to be taught on their own levels there. I'm grateful for that opportunity that uh, they have with the evens in doing that. Appreciate the work on their behalf. Luke chapter 7, so I ask you to turn this morning. I don't know if you kind of noticed the theme this morning of our songs has really been pointing to Jesus, hasn't it? Today we're going to talk about uh, him. I appreciate those, uh, how the Lord sometimes puts that together. Um, the U.S. Mint, I don't know if you saw this announcement of a new 50-cent piece that is being issued to honor two great American patriots. On the one side of the coin will be Teddy Roosevelt. On the other side, Nathan Hale. And uh, when they were asked why these two specific people are going to be on the opposite side of the same coin, it's so that when you toss a coin, you can now simply call Ted's or Hale's. <laughs> that has nothing to do with the message. I just wanted to share with you. And I want you to appreciate the top-of-the-line premium humor we have around this place, okay? And the best thing you can do is laugh when you hear it. Just chuckle. That's what my kids do, just politely chuckle and uh, hope it stops, all right? So, but uh, we're in Luke chapter 7. Uh, in our text today, we find some unusual things. Uh, we discover an unusual faith from an unusual man, and he displayed his faith in an unusual way. Uh, this, uh, <coughs> it's the first time in the book of Luke that we see a miracle from a distance. Uh, Jesus did several of those. This is the first one. Uh, no doubt in Jesus' ministry, we've been talking about him and uh, the fruit of the Spirit being displayed in Jesus' life. No doubt during his ministry, many times people looked on at what he did and miracles he, uh, he, he, he did to others and healing people and all that. No doubt many times people were highly impressed and probably looked at and just said, wow, as they see what Jesus Christ is doing. And uh, we've, again, spent uh, weeks looking at the fruit of the Spirit, and we've done that, <coughs> I think. I don't know about you, but in looking at uh, how Jesus displayed these things, I sometimes have no other recourse than just to sit back and go, wow, how I lived and how I ministered. That's not the way I want to look at it today, though. I want to ask a different question today, because it's expected that we would be impressed with Jesus. He's an impressive, well, he's the God-man, amen? He's all God, all man in the flesh. And it's, a, it's expected, of course, we would be impressed with him. I want to ask if Jesus is impressed with you. And I want to look at a man today that impressed Jesus. It's an interesting story. I want to get right to it. Luke chapter 7, verse number 1. What it, wouldn't it be fascinating if Jesus would be impressed with you today? Let's read verse number 1. Now, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. A certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he had heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. <coughs> when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying this, uh, that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. When he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, this would be other friends he sent to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but to say in a, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also 
am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at it. And turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And of course, uh, the servant was healed in verse number 10. I want to preach today on how to impress Jesus. How to impress Jesus. Father, I pray you'd help us now in the next few minutes here that we would be challenged from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Capernaum lay in one of the small bays of the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's called the Sea of Galilee by tradition. Really, technically, it's a lake. And, and uh, from Capernaum, one could see down the lake, uh, length of the lake as well as across it. Just two miles away, the Jordan River would flow into the lake. And uh, uh, in Capernaum, was a, in fact, you could see across uh, just the northern part of Capernaum over or, or the Lake of uh, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee there. Uh, where they fed the 5,000. Uh, you could probably see it from a distance uh, from Capernaum. Uh, a Roman garrison and an important custom house was in Capernaum there. Uh, also, a, a synagogue was in this city. Peter was from Capernaum, or he lived there. And also, Matthew became a disciple in Capernaum. Now, also in this town lived a soldier, a centurion. In the gospel, and in the four gospels and in the book of Acts, it's interesting that we come across the term, or we see four different centurions that the Bible talks about, and every one of them is uh, mentioned honorably, if you will. Uh, the fascinating thing is that these occupiers, they, these who they were, they were occupying Israel. They had their foot on the neck of the Jews, basically, and yet we find every time a centurion is mentioned, he is mentioned in a positive light. You remember the centurion that watched Jesus die at the very end of the crucifixion and he removed his helmet. He, Truly this man was the Son of God. Uh, he, that was a centurion. Uh, now the pagan world at that time was filled with the wreckage of moral decay. Sound familiar? A little bit. Uh, it seems like in the Roman army was the one place where you could find some men of character still. This particular centurion was born a heathen, but he was very friendly towards Judaism. We kind of see from the story here and, and uh, can piece together that he was a seeker. He was the kind of guy that was seeking for something. Now, like today, many secular people uh, were, even at that time, dissatisfied with immorality and then the shallowness of pagan religions. The high moral and religious standards that were put forth by the Jewish faith, probably appealed to some people, and it seems to have appealed to this centurion as well. The problem was that they had a lot of rules to obey. And to convert to Judaism, you'd have to change all the, uh, a lot of things like your diet would be a big one to change. You couldn't eat bacon anymore. That's a big change. Also, if you were a male, you'd have to undergo circumcision to join the Jewish. That would be a, a big deterrent, I would think. And so he hadn't yet uh, gone all the way over, uh, but uh, he was definitely kind to them. Can I tell you today that religion is not the answer to an empty heart? Never has been, never will be. Uh, having been raised in the Amish religion, and then knowing many people, I've seen a lot of Amish young people, in fact, 
there's even a word for it. Hollywood has taken it and don't believe anything you see on, on your TV about these people, but uh, the rumspringa word. And, and there is a season of time many young people will go out and really just live in the world. I mean, they all live it up. They'll party and do drugs and they'll drink and they'll do all these uh, crazy things uh, to, to leave the oppressive rules of how they've been raised. But many of these young people come back. In fact, probably more than half of them come back to their Amish life because what they find as the fact that religion does not fulfill you, it never will. Religion does not fill that God-shaped hole within you. But sin certainly doesn't. And sin brings misery and loneliness and despair. And so they go out and they find that sin leaves them even more miserable than they were. Religion does not do much better, but at least it makes an attempt to appease their conscience. It's heartbreaking to me to see young people that think that is their only two options. That they uh, have to either go live in sin, which leaves you empty and defeated, or have this religion which leaves you frustrated and unfulfilled. Can I say today that there is another way? Jesus Christ is another way. He is the way that offers not only appeasement to your conscience, but He will cleanse your soul because He paid for your sins on the cross of Calvary. So it seems this centurion is on a search for this very thing. Now there's another character given in our story. Uh, we won't talk about him much because it doesn't say much about him. And that is the slave. The centurion had a slave. We know least about him than anyone in this little scene here. Luke says that he's sick to the point of death. Matthew's, uh, P Matthew's story on this uh, version of this story in Matthew chapter 8 adds that he was paralyzed and in great pain. We never see him. Jesus never meets him. The centurion never mentions his name. We don't know the cause of his illness or how long he's been sick, although we assume it was COVID, but it doesn't say for sure that's what it was. But that's pretty much every sickness today, so let's just apply it here as well. But uh, we don't know. I have to picture this nameless slave lying here on a couch. He was just a slave, but he had something that very, very few slaves had in that day. He had a master that loved him. That's uncommon uh, to have that, uh, to be in that situation. It would be rare. Uh, in the Roman Empire, slaves had no rights. They could be mistreated, they could be put to death, and you'd never suffer for it. Uh, in fact, an ancient writer wrote this, and I quote, when your animals are old, you throw them out to die. You do the same with your slaves, end quote. The centurion was not a man who insulated himself from the pain of others, though. He had a heart of concern, even for this lowly servant of his who was dying from some paralyzing disease. The centurion had power. He had influence. But he has now met up with something in his life that he has no power to deal with. He cannot take care of this situation. Everything he's trained for, all the things, uh, the, the position he's got, can't take care of this problem here. And so he comes to Jesus. I wonder how many of us came to Jesus because of that very thing. Life presented us with something we could not handle or could not deal with. So, because he was a Gentile, the it would have been frowned on, on by his peers if they had a Jew enter his home. And so, he, because, he decided he needed a mediator. He got a group of people that basically recruited some of the Jewish elders and by the way, it's unusual that he would ask them, and it's unusual they do what he said. This is just, this has got unusual written all over the story. 
And so he goes to them and says, would you go to Jesus for me? Now, relations between Romans and Jews were never very good. The Romans had no use for the Jews, typically, and their Jewish or their religious superstitions, and obviously the Jews hated the Romans because they were their overlords and, and were, were their occupying army, so to speak. The centurion represented all of that. Normally they interacted as little as possible. So I find this intriguing. A Roman soldier, a centurion, in other words, uh, coming from the word cent, uh, he is in charge of a hundred soldiers thereabouts. And so uh, he's a, he would be a stern man, accustomed to be obeyed absolutely. Also, he was accustomed to oppress a conquered race, and no one would dare to raise a murmur. He was a heathen man who lived by, you could say, the world's creed, the, the world's golden rule. You know what the world's golden rule is? He who has the gold makes the rules. That's the world's golden rule. That's how he lived. He who has the power stands on the back of his captives. But God began to soften his heart. He begins to love the nation. He has been sent to trample on. So between this rough soldier and these neighbors of his, there springs up a probably first a mutual acceptance and then a love of sorts. With surprising generosity, he builds them a synagogue and uh, did that. That would be a tremendous gift to them. So this soldier did not only love his neighbors, which were beneath him, he loved his servant, which was further beneath him. He was an unusual man. Because of, back to the, back to his people he's sending to Jesus here. Because of all that he has done, the people are willing to take up his case. Uh, especially for this Gentile because of what he's done. So the elders come to Jesus. They urged him to act on this soldier's behalf here. So here is a Jewish delegation coming to Jesus making a request for a Roman oppressor. You don't see this every day as you read your New Testament. This is an odd scene. Remember, if you will, to set a scene a little further, Jesus has stated numerous times he has come for Israel. Uh, do you remember the Gentile mother that, Jesus, that came to Jesus to try to get him to help her daughter? And uh, she was begging for him to help her. He says in Matthew 15, 26, this is Jesus speaking, it is not meat or appropriate to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. That's ice cold, isn't it? Uh, called her a dog. It's not meat for me to take the children. Now, wonderful story. We've talked about that before. We maybe will again sometime. Tremendous passage. Won't go into that now. Uh, but but these, Jesus came primarily for the Jewish, Jewish people at this time. So maybe he showed a little hesitation here. So in verse 4, uh, so they came to Jesus. They besought him instantly saying that he was worthy of whom for whom he should do this. Maybe there was a little bit of body language by Christ here, a little hesitation, so they move in quickly to negotiate. They tell Jesus, now, this centurion is worthy for you to heal his servant. They, they had the wrong idea of the relationship between God and man. Stay with that thought in just a moment, and I'll show you the other side. So this is the view, by the way, of much of the world today. Why should God take you to heaven? I deserve it. None of us do, but many think they do. Ask the typical person if they think they're going to heaven, and the typical person, religious or not, will say, I think I'll go to heaven because I'm a pretty good person. So I'll go to heaven because I deserve it. Why should God answer my prayers? Because I deserve it. 
That's how people see it many times. But the Bible teaches that we're saved by grace. Grace is undeserved favor. When truth, when it comes down to the truth of the matter, none of us deserve anything from God other than punishment for our sin. Amen. So they, uh, but they're coming to Jesus here and say, he's not like other Romans. Uh, he loves the nation of Israel. He built a synagogue for us uh, in, in Capernaum here. And by the way, that's no small thing. We've done a couple of building projects around here. It's a big deal when you start to go out building something. Uh, why, this is why the Jewish leader says, if anyone deserves your help, it's this guy. Help him, Jesus, if you would. The centurion was wealthy. He was generous. He was a true public servant. Kind of guy you'd like for a friend. So Jesus went, the Bible says here in verse number 6. He went with him to the house of the Gentile, or toward the house, to help a Roman soldier. Now this is not unusual. Because Jesus goes where he's invited. You ever notice that? Whether it's a Pharisee who hates him, uh, whether it's this a centurion here, uh, even it going out of his way to speak to a dog person, basically, is how they referred to the Samaritans, the woman at the well. Goes out of the way to speak to her and, and show her his love and acceptance and forgiveness. Jesus goes where he's invited. He also goes where he is asked, he, he leaves when he is asked to leave, uh, i.e. our public school system, which has been wonderful since he's left in the 1960s, right? Uh, just uh, an amazing thing how we see the degradation there. But anyway, I digress. Here, uh, he always responds to invitations. But he never made it to the centurion's home because the centurion stopped him. And here we have another unusual statement. He said he wasn't worthy for Jesus to visit his home. Look at verse number 6. Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. <laughs> Wait. Stop just a second. Because verse 2, all the Jewish leaders, they said, hey, this man, he is worthy. But the centurion says, wait a second, I'm not worthy. Isn't that interesting? Now remember, we're, we're building some scaffolding here to answer the question, how to impress Jesus. All right, just add this to the, to the structure here. They say, this man is worthy. He says, I'm not worthy. He had the right relationship between God and man the view of the relationship between God and man, uh, knowing he wasn't worthy. This gives us a good glimpse of this centurion. He sent two groups of Je to, to Jesus, not to impress him that he was somebody important or that Jesus owed him a favor. He thought of himself as being unworthy to even stand in Jesus' presence. This man, an official of the Roman Empire, spokesperson for the Emperor Caesar himself, imagine a Roman officer telling a poor Jewish rabbi, I'm unworthy to even stand in your presence. This man has some serious humility going on here. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6. Most men, that's most men, uh, or we could maybe say almost all men, most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. Can I have an amen from the wives? Is this true, women? Amen. Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. We build ourselves up, don't we? Uh, we promote ourselves, often to our own detriment. I like what Abraham Lincoln said, what kills the skunk is the publicity it gives itself. A lot of truth in that, isn't it? A lot of people do the very same thing. Bring all kinds of publicity and it takes them down. Not the centurion, though. Uh, we see in this statement his tremendous humility. 
And humility, by the way, is a true estimate of oneself. That's a great uh, definition of humility. A true estimate of yourself. You ever heard anybody brag on themselves? Man, you're braggadacious, dude. Just telling the truth. Not really. Because a true estimate of ourselves leads to humility, not to pride. Okay, So this is where he was at. Uh, John Flavel said this, they know that uh, they that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. Very, very true statement as well. Humility is imperative if we're going to serve God faithfully, especially if we're going to impress Him. Uh, we must have humility. Jesus Christ set the example. Philippians chapter two, verse eight. He humbled Himself, made Himself in the fashion of a man to be our Savior. He was the one who occupied the highest place in heaven and voluntarily took the lowest place on earth. While most men seek a throne to build their kingdom, Jesus reaches for a towel to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus had humility. Uh, We've already talked about that uh, in our series here. Oh, for more people today with humility. We are so full of ourselves that it leaves no room for God in our life. The healthy heart. I read this this week is, is good. Exercise. The healthy heart is one that gets good exercise. Bowing down in humility and rising in exaltation. If we do that in our heart, uh, that would be good exercise for us all. One great example of this is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul started out in life as somebody. He had advantages. Today we would call him an Ivy Leaguer. He had the best education. Uh, he had the best pedigree. He made, uh, he, he made most of all of his, the, the, he made the most of all of his religious opportunities. He was extremely religious. He was a man of position and power. He called himself later, referring to that time as a Hebrew of Hebrews. Before he met Christ, he was a powerful man, feared by thousands and revered by just as many. Uh, it was surprising he could eat. He was so full of himself. Uh, this is who Paul was. Filled with pride and himself. Then he met Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. And something happened to Paul. Don't miss this. This is so good. There's a progression in his life. And I know I've shared this before, but I love reading this often because it's a good reminder for all of us. (coughs) Paul, as he started to follow Christ, uh, began to see himself differently. Uh, He wrote a book. Well, now it's a book, but a letter to the Corinthian church. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, this was about 54 A.D., a few years after he had been saved, about 54 A.D. So he writes in describing himself, for I am the least of all the apostles. Now let me give you three groups of people here, just to illustrate this. Let's put uh, Christians right here in the middle. Uh, saints is the way the Bible calls them. And the apostles would be higher than just a regular saint, amen? I mean, we're talking the apostles. That's a pretty elite group. You had to have seen Jesus Christ. There's no apostles today because uh, nobody has seen Jesus Christ living. And so this was a unique group. And Paul said, and so you have the, the apostles up here. We'll have the Christians in the middle. And then we'll have the wicked sinners, unsaved people down at the bottom. Okay, so here's Paul's progression. He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. Still pretty high though, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you're, it, it, the le- being the least of the apostles puts him above me who's just in the Christian group. Amen. Then a little time passes, seven years to be exact, well, six years. And he writes a book to the church of Ephesus. And he says in Ephesians 3, 8, I am the least of all the saints. Interesting. 
here, a while back, he was the least of the apostles. Now he's the least of all the saints. Moving, But wait a second, he's growing closer to the Lord. He's planting churches. He's winning scores of people to Christ. He's writing our New Testament. I'm the least of all the saints. Another year goes by, a year or two goes by, and he writes a, a book to Timothy to encourage him. And he said in Timothy 1, uh, 1 Timothy 1.15, and this was in 64 A.D., he says, I am the chiefest of sinners. You see what happened to Paul? He starts up here. And the, more, the closer he gets to God, the further down he moves on his own little totem pole. See, that's what, hap- that's what happens to us when we get a good glimpse of who God is and who we are. We're not filled with pride. You know, pride, pride's like a drum. The very emptiness in it is what makes the noise. You ever notice that about a drum? That's what a proud head does too. A lot of emptiness, a lot of noise. Uh, people love to toot their own whistle when they're proud. And so uh, we need to have humility. This is what this man had. And I, it's what you'll have too if you get a good dose of God in your life. Appetite says be sensuous, enjoy yourself. Education says be uh, resourceful, expand yourself. Materialism says be satisfied, please yourself. Psychology says be confident, fulfill yourself. Humanism says be capable, uh, believe in yourself. Pride says be superior, promote yourself. God says be wise, humble yourself. If we did that, it'd make a difference in our life. 1 Peter 5, 5 says to be clothed with humility for God resisteth the proud and give a grace to the humble. That's just what the centurion did here. Now, here, back to our opposing opinions. I, I find this fascinating. The Jewish elders tell him, Jesus, that this man is worthy. The centurion tells him, I am not worthy. So which one is it, I ask you? Was he worthy or was he not worthy? <coughs> Another question. Is this even a good approach in the first place? Should we try in our life as well to find some balance between feeling worthy or that to, to receive favor from God and feeling unworthy? Not really. There's really no middle ground here. The answer is to take our eyes off of ourselves, our own worth or lack thereof, and fix our eyes on Jesus. Let me explain a little further. Because if you come to God with a need and you say, hey, I deserve your help. I deserve an answer to this prayer. I deserve to have this need met. Or if you don't come to God at all, because I'm undeserving, why would God save someone like me? Why would God care about me? And both of those approaches are absolutely mistaken. Because either way, you're putting your faith in yourself and your performance, either your performance or lack thereof. Either way, you are the focus. Listen, friend, in in the right relationship between God and man, you are not the focus. He is. He's done what he needs to do. Uh, to, to save us and to sustain us. What a blessing. The, the truly humble man doesn't know he's humble. You ever notice that? We all joke about, I wrote a book on 10 ways to be as humble as I am. And I'll sign it for you if you'd like. Uh, we joke like that, but really, the truly humble man doesn't know he's humble. One of my favorite illustrations is the pastor. He was such a humble pastor and, and for years served this church family. And his church family appreciated his humility and his grace so much. They gave him a button that said, world's most humble pastor. And they, they presented it to him because, well, pastor, you're such a humble guy. We just appreciate you so much. So they gave him a, a button kind of about this side said, world's most humble pastor. The next week, they took it away from him because he wore it, right? You're not humble anymore once you wear it, amen? So 
the humble person usually doesn't, doesn't know they're humble. Moses didn't know his face glowed. He'd just been with God. And God was all over him. That's what humility does. The centurion knew he wasn't worthy of Jesus, yet he put his faith in him. Here we come to the point where he impressed Jesus. I want you to look at this. Look at verse number 7. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, <coughs> Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. Look at his reasoning there. The centurion saw Jesus for who he was. And with this faith, uh, or his faith, I should say, came from that understanding of who Jesus was. To, to the centurion, this was perfectly logical. I have authority over men. They have to obey me. They don't have a choice. You have power over disease. It has to obey you. It doesn't have a choice. He argues from what he knows about himself and what he believes about Jesus. If my authority produces instant obedience... How much will your authority produce, is what he's telling Jesus here. You know the only limits that, are on God, that, that really limit God and his power are the limits we put on him? He's unlimited power. We put those limits on him. What we could accomplish as Christians, listen, what we could accomplish if we only recognize the power of God. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. His power is greater than the power of the enemy. When there is a head-on conflict in your life between your enemy and the power of God, the power of your enemy will lose every single time. Okay, do you want to hear an Amish joke to illustrate this? Okay, let me, let me give you an Amish joke to illustrate what I'm talking about. Years ago, a logging <coughs> foreman sold an Amish man a chainsaw. Big deal. That's uh, a big no-no. That's a modern convenience. You can't have a chainsaw. You have. To, I remember growing up, uh, we couldn't have a chainsaw until we went to another settlement when I was seven. But uh, for a long time, we'd cut all of our wood every year by handsaws and uh, axes and all those things. And so here, this uh, he gave this Amish man a chainsaw, and he said, "This saw is guaranteed." He said, "You'll cut down fifty trees a day with this thing." Ooh, he was impressed. Uh, a week later, the Amish man, though came storming back into the store, slams down the chainsaw, and says, this thing is junk, and I want my money back. This thing doesn't do 50 trees a day. I couldn't even get more than three trees a day done with this saw. So the foreman picks it up. Well, that's odd. And he looks at the chainsaw, and he, he examines it, makes sure it's got fuel in it. That's sometimes a problem. Make sure it's got oil in it. And then he puts the choke on, he pulls the cord, and the chain roars to life, the chainsaw roars to life, and the Amish guy jumps back and he says, what is that horrible noise? God's power is available to us. Sometimes we don't access it. You know what I'm saying? The power is there. But if we, we are so willing in our Christian life sometimes just to take the saw and do all the work ourselves, instead of firing it up and get the power of God put to life in our life. We, we don't use it. Uh, the Bible says in Psalm 62, 11, God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. But he, he does belong to him, but he wants you to access it. He wants to work through you. How often are we content to use the saw without the power? Then we come to an unusual declaration here. Jesus, the Bible says, was amazed 
by this man's faith. Look at what he says. I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. By the way, he's looking for it. Do you know that? You know what the Bible says? When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find gold, silver? No, faith. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for faith. And he hasn't found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Now, here's, this is where it gets so sweet. Now there's three evaluations of this centurion. Number one, Jesus, he's worthy. Jesus, I'm not worthy. And then Jesus himself, I've not found faith so great nowhere in Israel. Isn't that interesting? This Gentile impressed Jesus. This heathen, if you will, impressed Jesus. Now we can learn some lessons from this man. Number one, great spiritual advantages not always result in great faith. Can I say that again? In simple language, just because you've been raised in church your whole life doesn't mean you got a lot of faith. Just because your parents had faith doesn't mean you have faith. Great spiritual advantages do not always result in great faith. The Jewish people had the knowledge of God through the law and the prophets. They had centuries of tradition. They had the history stretching back to Abraham. They had all the promises of God that they could claim. They had every advantage in the world. And when Jesus came to them, they said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not interested. We're not interested. In fact, they ended up crucifying him in the end. Yet here's a Roman centurion, a Gentile, a heathen. And he had faith. And Jesus was impressed. In fact, the Bible says he marveled. Now, here's your choice today, friend. You can be like the Pharisees, know a lot and believe a little. Or you can be like the centurion, know a little but believe a lot. Uh, And the the second is in a better place as far as Christ is concerned here. It's better to believe a lot based on a little than to know a lot and believe almost anything, uh, believe almost nothing. Men, does that make sense? Uh, the, the truth is, though, from one perspective, uh, the religious leaders, they rejected Christ, but we say they didn't have faith, but they really do have faith. Uh, they had faith, it just wasn't in Jesus. The, the religious leaders had lots of faith, but it was all pointed at themselves. Because truly, folks, uh, faith is completely natural. We all have faith. It's, it's, it's already going somewhere. Everyone in here this morning and everyone in Brookings this morning, they have faith in something. Most of the time it's in their own goodness, whatever that might be. But what we need is the Holy Spirit to redirect our misplaced faith and point it on to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where that's where the Holy Spirit comes in and does that work within us. Faith happens naturally. It doesn't just get created out of the blue. It gets recreate, uh, redirected by the Holy Spirit. But spiritual advantage doesn't mean you'll have great faith. Number two, great faith is often accompanied by a sense of a great need. It was his need that caused him to reach out to Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, friend. Do you have any needs? Do you have anything pressing in your life right now? I would dare say in a group this size, there's probably folks in here today and you came in, you've plastered on a smile, but you might have been almost crying on your way over. You, you tell people you're doing fine, but you're not doing fine. You know you're not doing fine. You got stuff going on that, that uh, you don't really uh, feel comfortable sharing with others, but bring your need to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's there. He's a need-serving God. Amen. Great faith is accompanied also by great humility, is the third thing. It was his humility that caused him to reach out to Jesus. 
Listen, can I tell you something? God is not impressed by the things that impress us. That's just something all of us ought to remember. I know, I know, when you look at yourself in the morning, it, it just almost shocks you how good looking you are. It does, doesn't it? I mean, man, just, and sometimes we stop to admire ourselves. Just amazing how good looking I am. God's not impressed by that. He isn't. He made you like that. Uh, by the way, your talent. Oh, the talent I have. God is so lucky to have me on his team. He, he's not impressed by that. He gave you that talent. That doesn't impress him. Our good works. Ooh, this gets tough here. Our good works don't impress him. Now, I say that as far as getting merit from him. Our good works don't impress him. Uh, he says in Isaiah 64, 6 that they're filthy rags compared to his righteousness. Merit does nothing for salvation. There's nothing we can offer to him that makes him want to give us salvation. All right? Down in our hearts, we believe it. <coughs> oh, we go through, most people do anyway. If I were a better person, God would answer my prayers. So we try and try and keep on trying. We work hard. We go to church. We obey the rules. We act nice. We try to be good. We hope that all that will make a difference with God. But in the end, religion can do the very same thing. I mean, you can do all those things with religion. It makes no lick a difference in your life. What does it take to impress Jesus? Faith. Unexpected, unashamed, unabashed faith. By the way, aren't you grateful for that? Because if it were riches, if it were good looks, uh, I mean, I'd be okay, but some of you, you know, there'd be a problem. But uh, if, if it were money, I'm kidding. If it were money, if it were education, if it were position, if it were power, we'd be disqualified. If it took being really religious, a lot of us wouldn't make it. <coughs> this is a warning to those who have great knowledge but practically believe very little. And it's encouragement to those of you who might know very little about what's in this Bible, yet you trust God based on what you know. Bless the Lord for you. Keep doing that. Hey, just trust Him and believe what you hear, what you know already. And uh, it's what you don't know It'll come. What you do know, put that in practice and God will bring you much more. When we come as beggars before him, stripped of our pride and our arrogance, knowing that if it were not grace, we couldn't come at all. When we come to the Lord for mercy, not merit, that's when we discover the life-changing power of Christ. Faith simply means believing God and doing what he says. That's what faith is, just believing God. Like I mentioned last week when I gave the illustration of this chair, uh, the faith to sit in this chair is simply me believing that if I sit down, it'll hold me up. That's all it is. It's believing that it'll do what I want it to do. Now, sometimes, and, and you might ask today, give me something practical, because we talk about faith, sometimes it seems abstract. Let me, let me just make it very practical for you. Today. I'll give you three illustrations. There's many more we could give. But faith simply means believing that something is true and then just doing it. That's all it is. Number one, the Bible teaches us to give. Teaches us to tithe. Commands it. it. Says we're robbing God if we don't. Malachi 3. And so, faith does it. That's what faith does. Faith just, okay, I believe you. I don't know how I'm going to make my bills. I don't know how I'm going to do this. But God says that if I do it, see, and he, by the way, this is the only double dog dare God throws down in the Bible that I know of. He says, prove me herewith if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. And he, so, so faith says, okay, God, I believe you. I'll do what you say, 
and I'll trust you'll do what you say. That's all faith is. It's that simple. Number two, the Bible says not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Essentially, it's telling, saying be faithful to church. So faith says, okay, I'll do it. I'll go to church faithfully. I might have to rearrange my schedule. I might have to do some moving around here, but I will go to church faithfully because that's what faith does. It believes it and does it. There's a man in our church, in fact, he's here this morning right now, who turned down a good job and took another because it, the first one affected his church schedule. And he didn't want to affect his church schedule, so he took a second one. And, uh, and that's, and I, I, you say, does that impress God? I believe it does wholeheartedly. Amen. That's believing God. Hey, you say it, I'll do it. That's faith. Here's a tough one. In fact, I want to just skip over this one. Now we have to do it because it's in the notes. Forgive those who treat you wrong. Love those who hate you. The Bible tells us to do that. It's a command. Now, we can't really do it on our own, can we? It's not something, I don't know about you, but that's really hard for me to do. Uh, you know, if somebody misuses me or hurts my family or does something to just uh, terrorize me or my family, and I say, oh, I love them so much. That's not an easy thing to do. But faith says, I believe you, God. I believe that with your enabling, I can love that person. By the way, pray for them. That helps. Not that a rock will fall on their head. That's an Old Testament thing. Pray for them, and it'll help you gain a love for them. Okay? So, uh, you, we can't do... But I'll give you an example here. If I turn my phone on, um, most of people who have smartphones today, uh, you know there's that little thing called Wi-Fi. And it's everywhere today, isn't it? Uh, I love going places where there's no Wi-Fi. Man, you want to you wanna get your kids upset, find places that don't have Wi-Fi and take them there. Amen? Another, by the way, another great way to call them to dinner. Don't go yelling through the house and hollering for them to come to dinner. Just go turn the router off. They'll all show up and they'll, they'll come see what's going on. And, uh, but the Wi-Fi, and so when I turn on my Wi-Fi, I can access information and I can get what I need. I can get access to what I need. Faith is like Wi-Fi. It's invisible, but it has the power to connect you to what you need. And we could go on and on with examples, but you get the idea of faith is simply saying, Okay, God, you said it. I believe you, and I'll do it. Put it to work in my life. That will impress Jesus. It will impress God if we do that. Faith works when our trust in the Lord is so strong that we're willing to take a risk. I think this is why the Pharisees, who had plenty of religion, never had, any, had much faith. Too dangerous, too risky. They couldn't afford uh, to take a risk and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know this centurion, why he impressed Jesus? Think about the risk that he took. What if Jesus wouldn't have come? What if he tried to save the servant? It wouldn't have happened. What if Jesus rebuked him for not being Jewish? Can I tell you today, friend, every time you want to enact faith in your life, there's always going to be a what if. Overcome it. Faith is belief plus doubt and acting on the belief, not the doubt. The reason you don't have faith and we don't have faith in our life is because we act on the doubt, not on the belief. But feed your faith and your doubt will starve to death. Amen. Put that to work. What tremendous faith this man exhibited. No wonder Jesus was impressed. By the way, Jesus is in command of what's overcoming you today. It's highly likely that each one of us in here today are impressing Jesus right now. Let me explain what I mean by that. That there's only two times in the Bible that it says Jesus marveled. Interesting if you look at both of them. The first one is right here. He was impressed with this centurion. 
The other one is found in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus marveled at the lack of belief in the citizens of Nazareth. He found it astounding that people could see so much and still refuse to believe. And so he marveled. So it's an interesting thing. At one place, Jesus was impressed by the level of faith. And in another place, Jesus was impressed or depressed by the lack of faith. Let me ask you today, which one are you? Where does that find you? Is Jesus looking at your life and says, that guy, you know what? She or he, they're, uh, you know, they got their problems, they got their struggles, we all do, but they're, they, they take what they learn from the Bible and they put it to work, they're doing the best they can. That impresses Jesus, that impresses God. Or is he say, man, all that they've seen, all they've heard from the Word of God, all the reading in the Bible they've seen, all the knowledge they have, and they still won't believe. And he marvels at that. Isn't that something? God can marvel at you for two different ways. I'm asking you today, which one is it? I don't know about you, but I'd kind of like for him to look at me and be impressed in a good way, amen? Not be impressed in a bad way. What impresses Jesus in your life? How is he impressed in your life? Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. We covered a lot of ground today. Maybe the Holy Spirit or the Lord spoke to your heart in a special way about an area that you can <coughs> do better serving Him. Maybe we have uh, we know things that we ought to be doing and we're not doing them. We know we should. We just don't do it. That's called a lack of faith. Lack of obedience. Faith equals obedience and equ uh, obedience will equal faith. They go hand in hand. How about you today? How are you doing? As she begins to play, would you stand along with me, heads bowed, eyes closed, still the altar?